I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. On Tuesday, a review of the Murphy Commission's report on the clerical abuse of children carried out by Barrister Fergal Sweeney and commissioned by the Association of Catholic Priests found that the practices and procedures of the Commission fell far short of meeting the requirements of natural and constitutional justice where Catholic clergy called before it were concerned. This was followed by a statement from the Archbishop of Dublin, Dr Dermot Martin, defending the Murphy Commission. To explore what's going on here in a little more detail we're joined now on the line by the religious affairs correspondent of the Irish Times Patsy McGarry Patsy good evening reviews of reports of commissions commissioned by what's going on here well that's a very good question Eileen particularly four years after the event uh, the Murphy report was published in November of 2009 uh, and almost immediately there were some priests who simply had great difficulty in accepting its findings. That's priests here in Dublin. Um, uh, they made their views clear in letters to the, our own paper, the Irish Times, and indeed in some books published subsequent to the Murphy Report, one in particular uh, edited by uh, Father John Littleton and Eamon Marr, um, which basically culled or collated people's responses to the Murphy Report, including those who did not accept its findings. And this is the latest, if you like, in that tranche of those who are, in, in my view, in denial. Well, what's the hub of it? What's it saying, this report? Well, basically, he says very fundamentally that the natural and constitutional rights of those who appeared before the Commission were not respected, um, that the Commission went beyond its remit, um, that was sarcastic and critical, overly so in some of its findings where individuals, particularly clerics, were concerned, and essentially that it was uh, uneven in its treatment of clergy who appear before it as opposed to lay people. And have they got a case? I don't think so, frankly. Neither, obviously, it seems, does the Archbishop of Dublin, who came out with a very strong, robust statement in defence of Murphy the day after uh, this report was published in our own paper. Um, uh, in the context of natural and constitutional justice, he points out that people who appeared before the Commission were entitled to legal representation at the Commission in preparation of their evidence to the Commission and while uh, giving that evidence to the Commission, and that afterwards um, they were entitled to seek judicial review of the findings. That didn't happen in any case. Now, they would claim that their, the individual's right to his good name wasn't protected. Well, I find that most intriguing, Eileen, not least as the great majority of priests in, dealt with by the uh, Murphy Commission are not named. They have, have been given pseudonyms, mainly Latin names, and those that were named had been convicted in the courts. Now, where bishops are concerned, while they were, if you like, representatives of the institution, they were uh, bishops, archbishops of Dublin and uh, auxiliary bishops of Dublin, the uh, uh, function of the Commission was to look at how that institution handled the allegations of clerical child sex abuse as it was in, uh, where statutory agencies were concerned. It's difficult to see how it could do so without naming individual bishops. Uh, and it would appear those bishops didn't have a difficulty in that, in that, as, as I said, they didn't seek judicial review either where their evidence was concerned or their being named was concerned. Now, uh, social media went ballistic on all of this. There's an ocean out there again that, that the clergy are trying to wriggle out of this. I think that's probably, uh, certainly is very unfair where the great majority of priests and indeed bishops in Dublin are concerned. As I said, there is a small number who simply will not accept the findings of Murphy. I think that really 
their uh, denial is uh, to the detriment of their priesthood uh, uh, in general and indeed of the reputation of the church and even the Association of Catholic Priests to commission this report. Well, the association says that it has had a constant stream of priests coming to it over the last 18 months, unhappy and wanting something done about this. So do you think they've shot themselves in the foot? I think it was a mistake by them, Eileen. Um, uh, why are they coming forward in the past 18 months? I mean, the ACP, the Association of Catholic Priests, is in existence three years. What's happened to promote this anxiety in the past 18 months? I really couldn't put a finger on that. I know that the ACP has a, a, a deep concern, as most fair people would, with the treatment of priests who face allegations and the very public manner in which these men were stood aside from ministry while investigations were taken, took place into those allegations uh, to establish their veracity or otherwise. And very often these men who were displaced or removed very publicly by their bishops were not replaced as publicly so that stain remained on their character and to that end the ACP has a very strong case but where the Murphy Commission is concerned I think it's another story altogether. Okay Patsy McGarry thank you for that. Well this is the feast of all saints meaning that last night was the eve of all hallows or Halloween and tomorrow of course is the feast of all souls. So it's time for thinking about the various manifestations of the spirit world. One aspect of this was explored at the recent 13th annual ghost convention in Cork and we now have this report from Leanne O'Donnell. Well, if you're looking for ghostly atmosphere, you won't be Cork City Jail on a foggy October night. But as I head in this ancient-looking fortress, I can't help thinking about all the very unhappy ghosts who may have cause to visit Cork City Jail. My name is Richard T. Cook. I'm the founder of the World Ghost Convention. The reason that I found it was due to people sharing their own personal experience with me, you know, and we get the best professional psychics, mediums around the world. So we just do it for to help people just to come away aware that they're not alone. And if they're a bit dubious about it, this is the place to come along. Why did I come? Just, I'm really interested in just the paranormal stuff and stuff that happened to me. Like, So do you think there's lots of spirits around here then? Well I believe in it anyway and uh, I'm open to it I'm not going to be like, I can't really say something and expect anybody else to believe it but I believe in it and I'm open to whatever happens. Um, I'd be very sceptical, I find it very interesting but I'd still try and find like where the catch is because I'm a scientist so. My name is Teresa Collins and I'm a psychic medium Teresa, um, how do you understand a ghost? Um, uh, well a ghost is a spirit and the difference between a spirit and a ghost is a ghost is a spirit that's stuck in one place and can't move on. So if you think of the proverbial white lady who goes up and down the stairs every night at midnight, um, a spirit is a spirit who can come and go at will. And the connection is to the people in the house or the location is true love. So um, a spirit could be quite a positive thing to have around you? A spirit is very positive, yeah. We all have our ancestors around us and our aunts and uncles and everything like that who are in spirit and they all give us support and they give us love. And what would you do if you had what you would term as a ghost, so someone who was stuck? Um, If you had a ghost and that would be described as a spirit you don't want around the house, um, then you would have to ask that spirit to leave. So if you're asked then to do a a house clearing or what's commonly known as a ghost busting, you'd go into a house 
and you'd look at all the spirits inside in the house and the first thing you'd say is which spirits do you want to keep and which ones do you want to get rid of so obviously if your deceased loved ones come to visit you like your father your mother your grandmother your aunt they come in love and you want to keep them but perhaps there's a spirit there who lived in the house before you or perhaps uh, who lives around the land and is just stuck for a place to live and lives in your house then you don't want that one and that one would be like a ghost it's looking for a place to live and it's not associated with you but when your own ancestors and relations and loved ones come to you in spirit then they can come and go freely and the bond is love so that's the difference between a ghost and a spirit I know what I want to ask you really which is yep. that you seem very sure I am in every tradition in the world in every population group no matter if they have a religion a dogma a belief or no belief they all talk about spirits don't they now are they all stupid or what so what is this spirit and how does it communicate with us? I asked Catherine Lowry, another speaker at the conference, to give me her explanation. We are spirits having a physical experience. Well, a spirit decides to come to earth because they do decide it. There's a plan made. And so a baby comes down and takes on the physical body. And then later on, hopefully much later on, when we die, we leave the physical body behind and go back to spirit and your emotions your your mind and your spirit is intact which is how we can communicate spirit can communicate with us through telepathy basically is how they communicate but for us to do that we need to get get in the habit of it and it's just getting in the habit of relaxing the body and the, the mind and the you can't relax the mind so you focus on the breath and then that's when you invite spirit in. My name is Lucia Reed. And you've come here from? I've come here from Charlestown, New Hampshire, in the States. I'm here to speak about the lighter side of the other side. Because my feeling is that what you see in the media is often very melodramatic. And it's really not like that at all. When I'm doing mediumship and I'm working with a sitter, your loved ones are coming through. People you love, your mom, your dad, your grandmother, they're happy to be here and happy to be with you. And they often come through in a humorous way to identify if the person was funny, he's still funny. And he will come through in a humorous way so that you can identify him and you know it's really him. In other words, I could bring through just facts and, and figures, and, and I do that too, of course, the evidence is important. But the feeling, the essence of the person is so much more important um, in convincing you that you're really speaking with your uncle, your sister, whomever it may be. And where do you believe that spirits go to after they die? Do you have a oh, sense of a space? Or That's a great question yeah. because people seem to think that you know they're on Jupiter someplace. And no, they're right here. They're right here with us. We just can't see them because they're vibrating at a higher frequency. That's it. Drew Kelly is a psychic medium who has come all the way from New Jersey in the United States to speak at the conference. If you knew me five years ago, this would have all been something I would have considered nonsense. And so I would have been the least likely candidate. And I think that's kind of why it happened. And um, so I'm speaking about how it happened for me and to me and not to fear them, but to um, trust in the process of understanding them. There's too many people that don't have integrity about it that are trying to make, get a wow. And that's a shame because I think it takes away from what the essence of it really is. The essence is, is showing us that there's way more to us and to this life. I feel like man created religion and God created man. And I hope that my understanding of the spiritual world and unfoldment is, continues to evolve 
because if it doesn't, then I put myself and God in a box. But I'm happy, and I help a lot of people, and um, it brings closure to some people. And if I can help even one person doing it, then that's what I'll do. That report from Leanne O'Donnell. We've just heard the opening of Mike Oldfield's wonderful Tubular Bells, a composition famous and respected in its own right. However, for many, Oldfield's plaintive music became a harbinger of terror after it was used as the theme to William Friedkin's film of William Peter Blatty's novel The Exorcist, which was released on St. Stephen's Day, 1973. Forty years after the event and the day after Halloween, Jerry McArdle spoke to Barry Macmillan, our regular film critic, who's a lecturer in theology and ethics at Galway Mayo IT, about what else? Only horror movies. Well, I, I suppose the, the reason perhaps I came with reasonably low expectations uh, was because the horror movie is by and large accepted to be the most hackneyed or the most base, I suppose, uh, of all the genres. Uh, and I suppose uh, what I've come to realise uh, uh, through this is is that really there are there are two strands. Uh, there's the one which perhaps is more what you might describe as the exploitative, sadistic strand, uh, exemplified by things like the Saw series of, of films released over the last decade. Uh, but there is also a more serious strand, uh, exemplified by The Exorcist uh, and by a 2012 Romanian film called Beyond the Hills. I think what it what it shows is uh, is that um, to appropriate an aphorism of Oscar Wilde, uh, while they're all horror movies, uh, some of them are looking at the stars. The horror movie uh, transcends cinematic fashion uh, and does stir a genuine fascination in people. Uh, second thing, I suppose, then that, that that is fairly clear is that there are a standard set of horror movie tropes, uh, mostly a set of tried and tested cliches. In some instances, tired and tested cliches, uh, but some of these uh, are of interest to us uh, in what we are about. And then, particularly for us, I suppose, the more serious strand of horror movie that I'm talking about often has quite a bit of theology going on in it. Uh, And this is especially true uh, of the horror movie uh, that deals with things like possession or Satanism uh, and the demonic supernatural. Okay, well, we go through all three of those, but let's just start with uh, the fascination of the horror movie. In the two years, for example, where we've been doing these film items, there's almost always been a horror film that's just been released or is just about to be released. Uh, and you know, we've talked about doing something in this area uh, a number of times, uh, and that's because it's, it's always something which is being presented to an audience. In much of the same way that uh, for theologians or for believers in general, that assertions uh, or beliefs about God uh, inevitably raise questions about why there is evil or what's known as the problem of evil and God uh, and that even has a technical theological term theodicy uh, representations of evil or of the devil uh, inevitably I think by implication also raise questions about God and the existence of good The Exorcist which of course is the daddy of them all the, the, the real classic now I read the book of The Exorcist before I saw the movie and the book 
scared the life out of me. I sat mm-hmm. up all night reading it. I couldn't put it down. There's an interesting discussion in the book which doesn't make it into the movie, but it is actually in the director's cut where the exorcist himself, Father Merrin, and the younger priest, Father Karras, sit down and discuss why this possession happened. And Father Merrin says that it's probably a satanic attack trying to make us feel disgusted with ourselves and with our humanity. But at the end of the day, he says, I don't really know. Yes. I think given the reputation that the exorcist had, and uh, I think probably still does, I think people are possibly uh, a little surprised that both William Peter Blatty and William Friedkin, the director, both you know are on record repeatedly and saying that the reason for telling that particular story, uh, which in fact is apparently uh, based on a, on a real instance, was to offer some form of validation of good. But doing that through a representation of evil because a representation of evil raised the question uh, that if it was so so obvious and so palpable, then surely it was the case that there, there must be good uh, being um, cast alongside that. The same thing emerges again, uh, I mean, decades later in a film called The Exorcism of Emily Rose in 2005. And this notion of that belief in the reality of and the presence of evil as a validation of the reality of and the presence of good uh, is is explicitly stated in The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which also is loosely based uh, on another apparently true case. The thing which it patently is trying to do, uh, a little bit like both Blatty and, and Friedkin said, is to make the case through, in a, ki- in a kind of shadow way, but to make the case that these things occur, these things happen, and by virtue of their palpable reality, uh, therefore there is implied uh, the necessity for there to be good, for the necessity to be, uh, for there to be a balancing God. Now, whether that stands up or not, we can maybe talk about in a little while, but I think that's that's uh, what's... what's um, What's driving those things? And of course, they all seem to do reasonably well at the box office. So obviously, the cinema-going public has a fascination with the demonic and with evil. Yes, the fascination with evil and the demonic remains a constant, I think, because questions of good and evil are so primal and so archetypal for us. Good and evil are the two poles between which our lives move back and forward. Uh, and and for all the, their garishness and for all their extremity, horror movies do function uh, as an accessible way for people to access ideas on those questions. I mean, questions such as, you know, uh, am I safe? What does evil look like? Is evil real? How dangerous is evil? How close does it come? Can I protect myself from it? Um, Will God protect me from it? Can God protect me from it? These are radical, radically um, existential and theological questions. And in a very accessible way, they are questions which are are pursued, sometimes uh, poorly, sometimes well. Uh, They are questions which are pursued by the the serious uh, subgenre of the horror movie. Okay, you said there uh, before that there were a number of tropes or common motifs which recur in horror movies. Yeah, no, it should be said that the uh, in in two clear ways uh, the horror movie is fundamentally a very conservative enterprise both in terms of its form uh, and also in terms of its theology and i don't mean that in a pejorative way i mean that literally that it 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 conserves uh, that which is already there. Regarding this thing of motifs 
there are a basic set of variants which more or less provide the setting for a great many films of this in this of this type. Uh, there's a house uh, evoking all sorts of things around the security and the threat to home and family. There's almost invariably a basement uh, which is stirring up stuff about uh, fear of the dark, the descent into the hidden and the unconscious. Uh, there will be a dog. Uh, the dog uh, is sensitive uh, to the sense of threat uh, and then the dog will die, uh, signalling the growing nature of the threat. There will almost always be a previous extreme event in the location, building a sense of foreboding. Uh, And then, interestingly, uh, there's always some uh, sense of uh, uh, a threat implied through a change in the elements, wind, rain, thunder and lightning, this kind of thing, which literally introduce uh, the notion that there is a supernatural uh, presence uh, happening in all of this. Uh, during the summer, uh, there was uh, one of the, the box office hits was it was a, a film called The Conjuring, which was such, a, 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 if you like, a polished production line of all of the, the tropes and the cliches that it in fact became unintentionally amusing. It became actually a form of, of tick list. Uh, as soon as the dog appeared, it was like, OK, right, we'll give the dog 10 minutes. Uh, as soon as the creaky stairs appeared, etc., 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 From a religious point of view, then there's also a set of tropes uh, which are introduced. Religious objects uh, always take on uh, a particular significance. Sometimes, uh, to to move the plot in one way or another, these objects are defiled or inverted in some way. Other times, mostly they move from being that, they move to being objects of protection, uh, so have a certain talismanic quality. Um, The use of Latin. Uh, always appears. Demons uh, seem peculiarly fluent uh, in Latin uh, and interestingly are always more chastened uh, by Latin than they are by the vernacular. Yeah, Pope Francis is going to have a problem there because he doesn't like Latin. <laughs> we'll come to him in a while. Okay. There's, there's, there's another one too that, that, that I love which is, which is the, the, the hour of the devil which is 3am and apparently from watching Emily Rose the rationale behind that is that it's an inversion of uh, Christ's death. Christ allegedly died at three in the afternoon, so the devil comes into his own then at three in the morning. This was a complete uh, new insight to me. Um, all that I was aware of in terms of the, the, the cliches and the stereotypes were that something happens at three o'clock. For example, uh, in The Exorcism of Emily Rose, clocks stop at 3 a.m. in order to indicate the presence of evil. In The Conjuring, it's 3.07. In The Amityville Horror, it's 3.15. Uh, that, to me, was just, a, a, as I say, a kind of formal stereotype. However, Emily Rose proposes this quasi-theological rationale for it. Uh, interestingly, uh, in mentioning this to people, I've discovered that, in fact, this has, uh, whether it's emerged from the films into the culture or vice versa or both, I don't know, but uh, this apparently is now something that people know. Now, of course, the other trope here is that Catholics seem to be the only ones who get exorcisms right. There's a, a, a absolutely explicitly clear ecclesiological point uh, which is uh, underlined uh, by these films. Across decades, films of this kind, it's the Roman Catholic priest who is the moral and spiritual keystone. In The Exorcism of Emily Rose, a court case arises from the circumstances of an exorcism and the legal representatives are urged that really they need to get a Catholic defending attorney because, and I quote, we need someone who knows this shit. An attorney named Ethan Thomas who's identified as a religious man is suggested, but the suggestion is dismissed because Ethan Thomas is only a Methodist. 
Thomas is then engaged in the trial as the prosecutor, but throughout the trial he is portrayed as not really being a man of faith. The conjuring that we were talking about earlier, that, that kind of tried to break away from that, didn't it? <laughs> well, this is what's so notable about this is, is that in, in the conjuring, a Roman Catholic priest is approached uh, to come and combat the evil spirits. However, he tells the couple who approach him that he has to contact the Vatican to get permission to do the exorcism. And so in the face then of what you might call ecclesiastical bureaucracy, the couple decide to do their own lay rituals and lo and behold, successfully cast out the demons. So therefore, uh, in, a, in a very conservative uh, form, The Conjuring marks something of an innovation, which is the first post-clerical horror movie. The religious themes raised by these movies, talk to me about that. Well, it's an odd source, and indeed perhaps a particular medium of religious testimony, that is nonetheless making an absolutely straightforward, orthodox, theological case for good over evil. Barry Macmillan, and we hope we won't have caused you to have too many nightmares tonight, but that's our programme for this week. On Sunday night on RTE1 television, the considerably less scary figure of Imelda May will be Gay Burns' guest on The Meaning of Life at half past ten. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie, our phone number 012082039, and our postal address is the godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. Next week we'll be meeting Ireland's first woman bishop-elect, the Reverend Pat Storey. So gaji shin, slán ispanacht. Because I gotta have faith. I gotta have faith. Because I gotta have faith.